you're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. Well, good morning. Uh, as, I, as I told back in Bible study this morning, this is... Uh, the day 12 years ago that y'all voted on me to become your pastor. So we uh, celebrate 12 years of that this morning, and uh, they have been an amazing 12 years. <laughs> Remarkable what God has done. Such, such transformation, such healing, such restoration, such joy, such peace, such love. What a Savior. What a day. I want to begin this morning in Isaiah 43. So many of the prophecies that we have heard from Rhea and Amanda and so many others spoken over this body, over this area of all that God wants to do, plans to do. So much of that we heard as they would share this, this passage from Isaiah chapter 43. I don't know if you hear it. I don't know if you recognize it. I don't know all the places where you might have been. But God is, again, making it very certain, very clear that he is moving on the world and it's originating, some of it at least, a major part of it is originating in this area. I, I'm finding these crossroads of people everywhere and the conversations are consistent that they have received prophetic truth that, that Lubbock and this area is about to begin a remarkable work of God. I don't doubt it. I don't question it. I, I tell you what, God has established, God has moved, but there is going to be a competition, not not with what we typically think. Not the competition here, the challenge here, the overcoming will not be against those specific works of Satan that we typically see. It's going to be a work that has to overcome a religious mindset and a religious spirit. That is the crippling reality. And God is ready if we are ready to join him. Isaiah chapter 43, beginning with verse 18. Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. You shall, you shall, <clears throat> sorry, shall you not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owls, because I give water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. So many of the prophecies hang in that verse. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. <clears throat> it's the next phrase <clears throat> that catches my attention. The next phrase that says, Shall you not know it? The question on Isaiah's mind is, can you wrap your mind around what I'm about to do? Will you be able, 
in the spirit to comprehend what my plan is and what I hope to do. One of the unfortunate things that's happened in the Christian ministry is that we have so taught people, we have allowed them to lose their imagination. It takes a great imagination given to us by His Spirit to see the work of God because we're seeing that which is not yet. It requires our imagination, God-given imagination for us to see what is not yet done, what is not here, what is not yet said. But we've taken our imaginations out of ministry and ask you to see only that which is here. And God is saying, but there's so much more. And if you'll let me by visions and by revelations, by dreams, I will show you what has not yet been seen. Last Sunday night, Danny Wisnett shared a dream about him and Judy and Sue Ann, his sister-in-law, going back to Leveland. You get around him sometime, ask him to tell it, because I ask him to write it down because it's, it's, it's beyond imagination. Driving home and he sees this gate, recognizes that he's never seen this before. How did this get between sundown and Leveland and he had never seen it? Mountains and rivers and he turns into this gate and he just this fantastical vision of paradise and all that was there, all that could be seen and, the, and man, again, you just have to hear it because the symbolism in it was so profound, so clear. But one of those things that he talked about, he said, as, as they come across this wide river, they're driving across it. As they come up out of the water and they kind of turn up this rise, they, they drive by a burnout building. And he said, as soon as they turned past that burnout building, he said they were followed by seven wolves. And he said, and I didn't have any question. I knew what the burnout building was. It was a church. And I knew who the seven wolves were. I tell you what, it's powerful when we begin to, in our imagination, see what God wants us to see so that we won't be frightened by what we're watching because he's already revealed it. So many prophecies found in that, in, the, in their when Rhea and Amanda were here, I heard them speak this into personal lives and over this church. Behold, I will do a new thing. Can you comprehend it? As we move forward in this transition that we're in, and I am loving this transition. I'm loving every day getting to dump stuff on Parker because I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> sensing any of that, Parker? That? You sensing any of that? I, I wake up, think, what can I, what can I dump on him today? <laughs> As we move forward, the Lord is bringing very clear visions, very clear pictures about what he will do, what he's about to do in the coming days. He is revealing, if we'll watch, he's revealing this new thing. He is revealing this new direction, something he has on his heart for 12 years, we have been faithful to this vision of being an emergency room, him bringing the most broken, him bringing the greatest diseases, him bringing those things that seem hopeless and helpless, and he brings them week after week. 
and we watch lives being restored. For 12 years, he's been faithful to that vision, and that vision has not stopped. If you wonder if that part of this ministry will stop, the answer is no. That vision has not been released. He's adding a new thing. He's adding something else. Some of the messages that I've shared over the last few weeks seem much harder with sharper edges than I'm accustomed to giving. And there's a reason for that. So why would God give me these unusual messages? I, I shared back here this morning. I asked God, God, why do you keep bringing these unusual revelations? Like, it's still strange to me that it, at a particular time, God would tell me, show me that when he was asking Adam, Adam, where are you? Our typical teaching there is, Adam, where are you? I've got some punishment I need to roll out, and I need you present and get ready. Tuck your tail between your legs because here it comes. And God showed me that's not what he said. That's not our father's heart. Our father said to his son, where are you? Adam, you may think you can do this without me. But Adam, I'm here to tell you, as your father, I can't do what I need to do without you. Where'd you go? I know it's true. Because I know that's what he's asking us today. You're the only one who can bear my image. I didn't put it on the mountains. I didn't put it in the seas. I didn't put my image on the oceans. You can see my glory there, but my image rests on you, Adam. I can't do what I need to do without you. We bear the image of God. We know that, and he's asking, where did you go? What resentment are you hiding behind? What anger? What unforgiveness? What frustration or disappointment are you hiding behind? Sons and daughters, where did you go? Ask him, why do, you, how do you, why do you keep revealing? How do you do this? After 12 years, what I'm going to share this morning is brand new to me. And I shared back in Bible study because he told me, he said, Randy, it's because you were faithful to steward the last revelation I gave you. And I can't give you this one if you didn't steward the ones I gave you before it. He can't tell us these things if we're not stewarding and living and taking hold of what he just gave us. And I'm so grateful for the revelation. So why would God give these messages that are a little bit harder, a little bit sharper around the edges? Because it's the kindest thing he can do. There's no anger in it. There's no frustration in him in it. It's the kindest thing he can do because in these messages, he is giving us, revealing the visions very plainly. He's taking the confusion out of the vision. He wants us to be able to say, I get it. I see the vision. I hear it. I know what's going on. So that's one reason. The second reason is he wants to show us where we might stumble. What, what father setting a child out on a new course wouldn't say, watch for this hurdle and watch for this place. 
and recognize this is the place where you could get caught up. The nature of our Father, as He gives us this new thing, is I want to make sure you know where you might stumble. And sometimes those are a little more difficult to hear. We will see that again this morning. He will show us where we might stumble, and then he's going to show us the path, not around it, the path through it. He's going to show us that. Let's turn to John chapter 8. That's where we're going to be this morning. I love this passage, and we know it so well. John chapter 8, Jesus and the story of the sinful woman, this woman caught in the very act of adultery. Verse 1, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us, that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he had heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went away, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. I want to look first at this woman. The place where we consistently focus. I want us to consider the shock for her of this cruel moment. We read this in a very sanitary way. We read this almost like a documentary. It wasn't a documentary for this woman. It was playing out horribly. It was playing out because I'm, my assumption is when they caught her, when they took her, my suspicion is that there was no kindness in that moment. My suspicion is there was accusation. My suspicion is there were threats in that moment. I would not have even been surprised if someone hadn't said, this day, this sin will cost you your life because that was their full intention. This wasn't a kind moment for this woman. She was experiencing the shock of this cruel moment when the religious leaders of that day dragged her and put her before Jesus. And I'm wondering what she was thinking. I'm wondering as they're dragging her to put her before Jesus, she wasn't thinking, how can you judge me? I know you. I know you physically. My suspicion is that this woman was, was experiencing a very strange moment, cruel as it was, but as unbelievable as it could possibly be, 
because she very likely knew some of these men very well. Here's a woman who knew her guilt. She knew her shame. She didn't require any convincing. She made absolutely no defense before Jesus. And with her guilt, as she waits on the ground, what do you think she's expecting? Let's get in that moment with her for just a second. What do you think she's expecting? We get to know the outcome. So we pass through this very cleanly, very simply. What do you think her posture is? What does she expect? Oh, yeah, she's expecting the, the word that's about to come and the feeling of that first stone crashing into her face and the second stone and the third stone and hoping that one of them will quickly take her out so she doesn't have to feel what she's feeling. This isn't a good moment for her. It's a horrible moment. Thank God for her. And thank God for us. That's not what she heard. That's not what she felt. What did she hear? She heard the words of a man. She heard Jesus' words. And she heard those words and she heard the sound of stones falling. I wonder what's changing in her in that moment. She hears the sound of feet shuffling away. And then she hears silence. He's a, he's a remarkable Savior. She looks up at a man she might have never met. He looked down, and at some point, I don't know exactly when and there it did, but at some point, their eyes met. Guilty eyes looking into sinless ones. So what was her sentence? What she doesn't realize is that her judgment, her condemnation, is going to be laid upon those sinless eyes. He who knew no sin would become her sin very soon. And the judgment she deserved the judgment we deserve, he's going to carry to the cross. So here's a major point I want you to get. I want you to hang with me this morning. Here is a major point I want you to get. 
You will be Jesus. There's a song by that title. In this story, we have a tendency to associate with the adulterous woman caught in our sin, guilty. This morning, I have to get you to focus on another character for just a minute because you in these stories will become Jesus. You know that? You will be Jesus to her. You will be Jesus to the ones caught. You will be Jesus to the ones guilty. You will be Jesus to the ones who have been caught in their sin. You and I, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, who has indwelt us, has prepared us to be Jesus in these moments. Not because of ourselves, but because of what he has done. I'm not qualified. He is. He lives in me. He's qualified in me to be Jesus to everyone who comes in this situation. Now the question is, if I'm standing here before Danny Green and he has been caught in his sin and Danny looks up at me, Eventually. <laughs> the question here is will he be able to look into sinless eyes? In your sinless eyes. What do you think? To those who are broken, diseased, does your secret sin held so privately, held so deeply, does it matter? You're the only one who thinks about it. Does it matter? Can someone look up into your sinless eyes or at least Maybe the question is better. Can they see his righteousness in your eyes? Can they see in your face what God has done? Can they see in our eyes the purity of his heart? The forgiveness that comes by that grace? Can they see it? Because if they can't, where, do we, where are we going to send them? Where are they supposed to look if they can't see it in the righteousness that he's established in you and I? Where are we going to take them? Where are they going to go? That's why so many people are trusting religion because that's the only alternative that they can find because they can't find those sinless, righteous eyes. Will they be able to see his love by our hearts? His truth by our lives, his revelation from our tongues, his kindness from our hands, his grace, his compassion, his mercy. Will they be able to see those things in us? Do our small, private, secret sins matter? Yes, they do. Please understand, again, this is one of those moments. If you haven't heard me preach the hundred messages before this, about, about God and about, about our relationship 
and about the assurance we have in being a child of God, you won't fully grasp what I'm talking about. I understand that. So I'm going to be as careful as I can to speak about this as clearly as I can. Please understand that I realize I'm talking to primarily believers here this morning. I'm not trying to get you to doubt your salvation. If you're not saved here this morning, God will take care of that. I'm not here with any responsibility to bring you under my words to that understanding. I'm not trying to revive that which Romans 6 so clearly said was destroyed by his death, that sin that separates us from him. For you and I as believers, God says, I destroyed that sin. That sin is dead. But there's still that sin of Hebrews chapter 12 that where there's this warning. Be careful of that sin that so easily besets us. John chapter, 1 John chapter 1 says we still, if we say that we don't sin, we make ourselves and him a liar. We know that there's still sin capable and present. Does it matter though? And the answer is yes. So what kind of, what kind of sin am I talking about? Because we typically go, because of stories like this, we typically go to the abruptness of adultery, of fornication, of sexual sins, of drugs, alcohol, those things that have typically made the list. But we understand from the Scripture anything that is not of God is sin. So the list really grows to unbelief, rejection of truth. Man, you want to talk about something that we're guilty of, rejection of truth revealed, doubt, fear makes the list. Failure to repent makes the list. Weight that slows us down, religion, wrong priorities, treasures on this earth instead of in heaven. And this one, a big one, judgment of others. Man, do those matter? Does our anger matter? Does our resentment matter? Does our bitterness matter? Absolutely matters. Because God has said, I need you to understand your righteousness. I want you to understand your freedom because I'm going to send you everywhere you go. I'm going to be present with you. And when they look into your face, I want them to see my face. Sinless. You made righteous by what I've done. According to Romans 6, 4, he says we were buried with him to be raised to walk in this newness of life. He wants us to be mindful of the sin that the Pharisees walked in as they brought her to Jesus. I titled this message this morning, let me go back and look. I titled it because we typically know this as the story of the adulterous woman. I think that's kind of odd. I'm not even sure she's the main character in the story. Of course, Jesus is the main character, but I'm not sure she rates number two. The name of the sermon this morning, instead of the woman caught in adultery, it's the Pharisee caught in his sin. That's the tragic story. That's the real sad one. Because that's the sin 
that I'm talking about this morning, that one that he thought was very hidden, that sin that he thought no one would ever see because he came into that place very righteous. He came in very pious. He came in very sure of himself. He came from every religious precept, every religious concept, every title, every position that he could possibly hold came into that moment. He was carrying it with him when he brought that woman before Jesus and all that followed him here. And it's here in him we find this second lesson. The plot of the Pharisees, we know this very well. They hated Jesus. They hated him. Matthew 27, 18 says, For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. Mark 15, 10, For he knew that the chief priest had delivered him for envy. They were absolutely jealous. Besides, they said he cannot be the Messiah. We saw him go into Zacchaeus' house. The Messiah would be hanging out with us, certainly wouldn't have gone into the house of a tax collector, would not have been hanging out in the places where he went. He cannot be the Messiah. We know he can't be because the Messiah wouldn't behave like Jesus behaves. They were certain. They just had to find a way to get rid of him. Let's go back to John chapter 8. Look at verse 4 again. They said in him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery. In the very act, now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? Thus they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down. And he wrote on the ground, and when they heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. They are frozen for a moment. You see, they only expected two answers. They only expected a yes, you can stone her, or they expected a no, you can't. Either way, they win. They did not expect him to do anything like what he did. They thought they had him. So what was happening? What do you think was happening in that moment? Think about this for just a second. This isn't original to me, so I'm not going to take the credit for it. I heard this. I think I know what Jesus was writing on the ground. It says that they were being convicted in their own conscience. Now, you can look that up, but Romans tells us that the conviction that, they, that goes on in our, in like this is originally, it, it comes from the Holy Spirit. So what was happening to them in this moment. They're standing there and they hear this. They watch Jesus. He's riding on the ground. I think he was riding what the Holy Spirit was telling them on the inside. I think he and the Holy Spirit were in perfect agreement. I don't think they would have sent opposite messages. And what was the Holy Spirit speaking to them that created this outcome? What was the Holy Spirit saying? Guilty. 
you're guilty. I think that's what he was writing on the ground because I think they were watching him. I think they were frozen in the moment as he began with his finger to write on the ground and they were reading what the Holy Spirit was telling them. You are guilty. Isn't it amazing? The one who came there knowing she was guilty, knowing her shame, left righteous. The one who came thinking themselves to be righteous, left guilty. Still not to the sad part of the story. Because here they are. As scriptures, Romans 9, 1, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. So we find here a, a clue that Jesus is writing for the woman, because she was also guilty. For the men, they were also guilty. He likely wrote in that sand, think about it yourselves, come to your own conclusion. It's been a question for years. What did he write? I believe he wrote what the Holy Spirit said. The eldest realized that he could not throw the stone. Why? There used to be, I, I, I'm not going to get this right, but I can remember there used to be this, this uh, when somebody would offer an insult, they would say things like, no backsies. What'd that mean? I get to insult you, but you can't insult me. What did, what did that oldest Pharisee know would happen? If I hit her with this rock, what's that rock going to do? Right here. Right back at me. I'm, I'm going to throw this thing and it's going to boomerang right off her and it's going to get me because if I'm trying to get both of us, if I'm trying to get rid of the guilt by getting rid of her, that stone that I throw is about to nail me. He's standing there frozen because he knows now he's in real trouble. Would you? If you're in that moment and you see Jesus riding on the ground and here it comes out and it's like, He's asking this question now. Let he who is without sin come throw the first stone at her and you look down while you're writing and you were to read guilty, would you throw the stone? He who is without sin. He who is without sin, guilty. All generations, all people from the day Adam fell under that, under that identity until Jesus he who knew no sin. The love of God reached fully into this woman. We, we believe with all our hearts she was ultimately dynamically transformed. But the love of God upon his guilt was equally available to this Pharisee man. Do you know that? Upon the realization of his guilt, what could he have done? Do what? He could have repented. He could have turned to Jesus. He could have done exactly what the woman did. He could have done exactly what many have done. Why wouldn't he do it? 
Some will hear this story and focus on the woman and say, I haven't been involved in such a sin as she was. But it's not the ones that the woman represents that are our concern today. The vision, this new thing that God will do here will never be slowed by altered or be altered by the broken who have been restored. We will never be limited by the woman, women caught in adultery that have been restored, the men caught, the children restored. We will never be limited or slowed by those who have come guilty and have understand righteousness. We will only be slowed. The vision ever altered, it will be dynamically affected or slowed, crippled by the Pharisees whose private sins they thought were hidden. We're not going to be bothered by the adulterous women. We're going to be slowed by the Pharisees who thought they had their sins well hidden. And upon their guilt would not repent. Remember, just go back. Matthew chapter 3, in this opening moment when John the Baptist shows up on the scene, what were his, what was his opening words to these religious leaders? What, I mean, what did he say first? Repent, change your mind. He's not telling them that the the Old Testament, again, teaching of repent is to turn. That's not true in the New Testament. It's a different word in Greek than it is in Hebrew. And John the Baptist used the Greek word to change your mind. He's not, Jesus isn't telling these Pharisees, John the Baptist isn't telling these Pharisees everything that you've ever believed has been wrong. He said, I need you to believe a new thing. I need you to repent. I have something else I need to tell you. You have been religious. You have followed the law. You have done what has been in front of you. But I'm telling you, by the words of John the Baptist, I need you to change your mind. I need you to repent. And in this moment, now we are almost three years into Jesus' ministry, and he's still waiting on that moment when they will repent. And here they are in this dynamic moment, watching all of this, hearing all of this, knowing that their guilt has been established. Selfishness, bitterness, self-indulgence, pride, resentment, those things that we have hidden very deeply will be the things that affect us. Does our private bitterness toward a friend toward a brother, toward a sister? Does our unbelief that God is really good, that God really loves us, does it matter? Did it matter to this Pharisee? The answer is yes. If we don't have forgiveness for our smallest sins as believers, we will not lose eternal life. But we will become like the Pharisees and will walk away when the Lord is calling. Years ago, when I was in the oil industry, one of the more, most amazing things I ever got to see was when they would be down about 5,000 feet drilling and they would bring out core samples. Now, I mean, these core samples were solid rock. 
hard. I mean, they were sawing through this. And it would catch this sample, and then they would bring it to the surface, and they would open it up, and I mean, it's solid rock. It was always amazing when they'd break it in places, and there would be a fossil there, a seashell, 5,000 feet down. What you realize as you watch this, layer by layer, layer by layer, this stuff was being laid down. Sediment, layer by layer, being laid down. But now, it was as hard as rock. Guess what happens when private sin goes unattended? It layers like sediment until over time, it becomes as hard as a rock. Why couldn't these Pharisees repent? Because for so many years, their resistance to the truth, their bitterness toward others, their arrogance, their pride was being laid down layer by layer by layer. And over time and with pressure, it became solid rock. There was a hardness in them that could not be broken. I will tell you, it is that hardness that slows the work of God. Not the broken lives that he restores it wasn't, again, the woman at the well. It wasn't her sin that would slow her. It was the fact that she had been rejected five times. It was the fact that she was being rejected by the man she lived with. Jesus had to deal with her broken heart before he could deal with the brokenness in her life. If we don't have forgiveness for our smallest sins... They will lay like sediment, laid down layer by layer. Time and pressure will create hardness in our hearts. If we don't repent, change our mind, get in agreement with the revelations of God, and I can tell you, even right here, there are those who are going to receive this message differently. There are some who are sitting here like a sponge absorbing the truth and the revelation of God. There are some who are already marginalizing it and saying somehow, by some adjustment, he's talking, but it has nothing to do with me. And I will tell you, if that's the case, the sediment has been building. The saddest moment, when they turn away and left, beginning with the eldest rather than repenting at the conviction of their own guilt. What would have happened if the eldest had turned toward Jesus, realizing his guilt and sought the righteousness that now belonged to this woman, what would have happened if the eldest of these would have turned and done that? Now, we know the story. The eldest turned and walked away. The second followed him. The third followed him. The fourth followed them. What would have happened if the eldest, the leader, would have turned toward Jesus? What would the second one have done? Turned to Jesus. And the third and the fourth. You think this is a warning to you and I as leaders, leading our families, leading our Community leading this church that you and I 
by our response to these kind of messages, this kind of word is going to have an effect on everyone following us? There is no other way. Had this man turned, the second one would have found himself in the same position. Guilty. Where do I go? I just watched the eldest turn. I'm going to follow. The third, I'll follow. One came guilty and knew it, but was restored to righteousness. The others came assuming righteousness and walked away guilty. Again, we will not struggle if this body is made up of broken, rejected women. I'll, I'll take the adulterous woman every day. Because her heart is ready. She has seen the greatest love. She is standing face to face with the light of the world. She has seen the perfect love of God. She has felt the grace. And now she will be ready to give that to somebody else because she has it in her hand. And she'll be ready to deliver it to the next and to the next and to the next. I'll take a church of those every day, broken, restored, righteous, loving God. We will only be limited if we are the eldest hanging on to our secret sin. Somewhere in this, you're going to find yourself. Somewhere in this story, you'll find you. I hope you find yourself as Jesus in this story. Already ready, already knowing, already ready to offer and say, look into my eyes and see my Father's righteousness. I hope that's you. I hope you're, you rec recognize and stand with this adulterous woman, recognizing that at some point I was guilty. I'm not anymore. His blood shed on my behalf, that substitutionary life that Jesus lived, that substitutionary death that Jesus died, said my condemnation, my judgment fell on him. I will never be consumed by that fire. It's already fallen and it fell on my Savior. We're just here today to deal with the private sin. I hope that you sit here and realize, thank you, Father, that you've already made me very aware of this and I don't, there's nothing for me to do. Now, I've thought a lot, prayed a lot, asked a lot. I was, we were in Austin the end of this week and on my way there, I got sick. I I don't really give Satan much credit for about it, for anything, but it was like he was determined I wasn't going to get to deliver this message. I went to the doctor and I tested positive for strep and flu A. Never had a symptom outside of the throwing up. That was kind of a mess. But. Never ached, never had a headache, but I was quarantined into this room for two days. Didn't see our grandkids there until Saturday morning, right before we left. 
had a lot of time to be alone with the Lord. It's been a lot of time. So I ask about how to end this service. He was very clear. This is the kind of moment that evangelists love. If they can get you to feeling guilty enough about what you've done, they can get you to the altar. And God says, "Mm -mm. I want the change to be quiet inside them because it's the only change that will matter. No fanfare. Just me and them. Let me do in them with their private sin what nobody else can do. Let me bring what only I can bring. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.